we got demons in the electricity again. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Before we get started, we'll need to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. But before we pray, a booklet has come out called Caroling to Christmas, which is a uh, devotional that has, I think, around uh, a devotional. If you start reading on December 1st, it will take you up to December 25th. And these have been written by different stories on each of the different hymns, have been written by different members of the Chafer Seminary Board or faculty, plus a a few others uh, who are um, pastors within our um, milieu. So, uh, I would encourage you to get that. We 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 emailed information out, and then we bought a little over 20 copies uh, to just give out to whoever got here first come, first serve. So there's a box down in front of the pulpit that you can uh, come to after after class. So that'll be the only time I'll give a walking the aisle invitation at this church, okay? All right, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful that we have you to come to, that you are our strong tower, our shield, our defense. You are the one who uh, is always there to uh, uh, back our play and to stand behind us, to strengthen us, to be our rock. And we live in a world that is uh, shifting quickly in many different arenas. The, uh, we know that you uh, rule over history and that all things work together for good because you have a plan and you're working that out. And we need to learn to trust you and to relax. And as we look at the circumstances and situations whether we're talking about the wars in Ukraine or Israel or whether we're talking about just the health problems that so many face in this congregation or whether we're talking about uh, uh, the political pendulum that swings in this nation, Father, we must trust in you. But, Father, tonight we have a special prayer request because David Dunn is – probably in the uh, operating arena now as they are preparing for a heart transplant. They have to make sure that the heart that they have, that they believe will be compatible, is compatible. They have to perform various tests and then engage in the uh, operation itself. So we pray that, uh, uh, that the doctors will do well. We pray that the heart will uh, be compatible and will uh, function well and that there will not be any complications or problems. We pray that David can be restored to his strength and health. We pray for his wife, Misty, that she can relax and that she can um, put this in your hands. And for all those that are there that are with her and supporting her, Father, we know there are many believers praying for him tonight, and we just uh, put him in your hands. 
So, Father, now as we go about our study of your word, may, may we be reminded of the importance that your word is to play in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study in Philippians, and it seems like we sort of bounce every other week. We had about five weeks off, and then last a week before last, we resumed, and last week I was in Tucson. Next week, I, it will be Thanksgiving, and there will be no service on Thanksgiving evening, and then the next week... And for the rest of the next three or four months, as far as I can tell, until about the end of March, uh, there will be no problems on Thursday night or even on on uh, Tuesday night. So we're in Philippians 2, looking at this section that goes from Philippians 2, verse 12, uh, down through verse 18. And this is a significant passage. Uh, there are some important things that I have pointed out already. And just to review us, there is this introductory uh, paragraph to this section. The main part of the epistle begins in chapter 1, verse 27, and extends down through chapter 4, verse 1. That's your main body. You have an introduction setting forth the main themes in the first 26 verses, and then there'll be a lengthy... Is there a problem with the sound? It wasn't out that far. Okay, is that any better? Better? Okay. All right, so um, the conclusion goes from verse... uh, What did I say earlier? Uh, Verse 8? No. No verse 3, down through the end of chapter 4. So that's, that's, we're in the main body of it. And the, there are two themes, as I pointed out the last time. The focus is on how we walk, how we live our life. And instead of using the same phrase that Paul typically uses, where he uses the verb um, peripateo, which is the verb for walking, he uses a different word here because he's writing to these Philippians they, there are a lot of retired uh, Roman soldiers in Philippi. It is a Roman colony, so everyone there is a citizen of Rome. And so they understand that they have a responsibility as citizens to live up to a certain standard of civic involvement. Okay, and so that's the word politumab, the P-O-L-I at the beginning, is the root, which is the same root from which we get our word for politics. And uh, you see it in the word metropolitan. The P-O-L-I has to do with the city. So uh, it has to do with living your life according to the standard of good citizenship. So it is translated as uh, let... Uh, let the way you live your life worthy uh, let only let the way you live your life worthy of the gospel of God, be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this phrase, stand fast, and the phrase with one mind, really tell us about the themes of this epistle, that we are as believers to stand fast in the truth of God's word. And that plus the theme of unity 
uh, go throughout this opening section, especially down through uh, down through um, the second uh, chapter. So last time we focused on this word for standing fast, looking at what the Bible teaches about standing fast. So the general outline that we had was two one to four one. I misspoke earlier. I tried to put the beginning of the end at four five or six. It starts at four two. The first the first section is the introduction one twenty seven to thirty. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Very similar to how Paul started another prison epistle. He wrote Philippians and Ephesians, remember, at about the same time. So there are a lot of uh, related themes, similar themes in the two epistles. Uh, Second section, main section, is an emphasis on life characterized by unity and steadfastness. Unity in chapter 2, steadfast focus in 3.1 to 4.1. And then the third part is the conclusion which it should be four two, not four two nine, but four two down to twenty. Okay, the concluding challenge to steadfast thinking and living that that sets out the um, oh that's the main body. So the main body goes. I was right, confusing myself. I was right that that the main body goes to four nine. The conclusion is four two through nine. That's cor- that's correct. Okay, so we looked at the introductory pat paragraph. We're to live our life worthy. Two characteristics, unity and being steadfast. And that we are to do this, whether Paul's there or not, whether somebody's watching us or not, we need to stand firm. This is picked up towards the conclusion. At the conclusion of the main body of the epistle, he reminds them, stand fast, just as he does at the end of 1 Thessalonians. Um, or just as he does in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians three eight, standing fast in the Lord. So we are to stand fast in terms of our identity in Christ. We've seen this emphasis in in Ephesians, haven't we? That we are to live worthy of this new identity. That we are in the new man. We have put off the old man. We have put on the new man, which is. Uh, the church, it's comparable to being in Christ and our new position in Christ wh- rather than in Adam. So we started into this section from 12 to 18 in chapter 2, and there's uh, two basic commands that we have looked at. The first command um, is to work out your deliverance. That's in verse 12. Typically, it is translated, work out your own salvation, but that conveys a misunderstanding because it's not about talking about getting saved from eternal penalty of sin, getting saved and avoiding the lake of fire. It is talking about uh, working out our deliverance during, in terms of our spiritual life and our salvation. Remember, there are the three Phases of salvation. Phase one is justification. It takes place in an instant when we trust Christ as Savior. We are born again. Then we have a new life. That's phase two, living our Christian life. And then the third phase is glorification when we die and we're absent from the body and we're face to face with the Lord. In the first, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. 
And the second, we're delivered from the power of sin. This is the process of spiritual growth, spiritual advance. And then when we die, where there's no more sin nature, we're separated from the sin nature, we're absent from the body, we're face to face uh, with the Lord. So this first command is that we are to be working out or developing our uh, lives in terms of our deliverance from the power of sin. The second command is that we are to do all things without complaining or disputing, without arguing and griping, in other words. And so that's the second command, and it is to do this for a purpose. That's explained in verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless. That is a description of our walking as believers in right relationship with the Lord, walking uh, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, walking in the truth. All of those different metaphors all describe that same thing. By the way, when I was in Tucson last week, I did... Um, I taught on this whole issue of the spiritual life, comparing and contrasting what Paul says, abiding in Christ, which in John 15 is the sole and necessary condition to produce fruit. In Galatians 5, walking by the Spirit is the sole and necessary condition to produce fruit. That means there is something comparable between abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit. Then when you get over to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, the command is to walk in the truth and you produce, and there's a textual problem there. King, New King James and King James says you, um, you're walking in the truth and it produces the fruit of the Spirit. The, so there's an alternate reading which I don't think is correct, but it would make sense within the context. So there's a, it's one of those that could go 50-50, I think, that if you're walking in the light, it produces the fruit of the light, which is righteousness. And um, that is the sole condition for producing fruit, is walking in the light. So walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, walk, and abiding in Christ all are the sole necessary conditions presented in those chapters. And then when you take the concept of walking in the light in Ephesians 5 and compare that to what John says about walking in the light and the need for confession of sin in, uh, in 1 John 1, that sh that's where you draw the connection. So many people say, well, how do you get the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 connected to confession of sin when nothing mentioned in the surrounding context of either chapter relate to, there's no mention of confession in Ephesians 5, no mention of the Holy Spirit in John 1. Well, you have to compare and contrast what is said in all of these passages. And when you do, you realize that there, each passage is talking about different aspects of that spiritual life that we have. And they all present um, absolute contrast between walking in darkness or walking in the light, walking in the truth or walking according to the lie, walking according to the Spirit or by means of the Spirit, walking um, according to uh, the flesh. They're absolute conditions. 
And so if you stop walking by the Spirit, stop abiding in Christ, stop walking in the light, stop walking according to the truth, and you're living according to the lie, then you have to recover. And the only place that really emphasizes this with the word confession is 1 John 1, 9. But the point of confession is cleansing. Cleansing is mentioned in numerous passages and is portrayed by the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 13. So that is just a thumbnail sketch of what I developed uh, last week when I was in Tucson. But by going through it, it'll help you understand how all of these different uh, facets, these different descriptions of the spiritual life all fit together. And the result of this should be that we are walking in the light, which is a position where while we are walking by the Spirit or in the light, we are not sinning. And that is uh, described a lot by John in 1 John. That we, here Paul says that you can become blameless and harmless. And the word for become means to become something you aren't. Because when you're a brand new baby, you're not blameless and harmless. You still live according to the habit patterns of your sin nature. And so we have to grow. And that we are to become uh, blameless. And this is the uh, noun on the bottom left. It just means without guilt or without blame, without fault. And then you get the word over here, akarios which is something that is unmixed. So we are not mixed with that which is, um, which is going to produce sin. Uh, and see, you get people, you'll hear them. I hear people on the radio, oh, well, you know, we all sin. It's hard to, have, to live with unmixed motives, and so we can have a little sin and a little, um, a, a, a little uh, righteousness. No, we can't. Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. The sin nature and righteousness are uh, mutually exclusive. You can't do that. But that, that is a very popular way that the Christian life is taught. There used to be a guy uh, on the radio in Dallas. I don't think he's on the, I had never heard him on the radio here, but I've heard others teach this on, on different stations here. And this just is, goes against all of these different passages which present the fact that you're either living your life this way God's way, or you're living your life according to your sin nature. You can't mix them. And so this idea here of akarios is the idea that there's no mixture of sin or evil. Uh, children of God without fault in the midst of the crooked and perverse generation. So these two words indicate and describe the world. It's crooked it's perverse. It's distorted truth. It is no longer walking according to the truth of God's word. It is in complete and total rebellion against God's word. And all we have to do to understand that is just watch the news on any morning or evening, and you will see how the world just seems to be crumbling and falling apart. But in the midst of this, God has a mission for us and a purpose, and that is to shine forth. Now, that's the word phino, lower left. It's a present middle indicative, indicative indica and the middle voice indicates it has benefit for us as well. It's a reflexive idea so that we are to shine as lights, and that's the word uh, like a luminary. We're to light up things. People are to see truth because of our presence 
And that isn't always because we try to straighten them out. I think there are some Christians, usually young believers, who hear somebody say something wrong and they immediately try to straighten them out without developing a context uh, for doing that. So we have to recognize that we are to be out there shining forth as, as lights. This is accomplished through Romans 12.2. We can't be pressed into the mold of the world. Too often the peer pressure is to get along with other people and not be seen as different. But as a believer, you're called to be different, to be a counterculture, uh, to be light in the midst of darkness, that people should look at your life and know there's something different, and they might not like it in the world that we live in today. So we're not to be pressed in the mold of acting and thinking like unbelievers. And that's the concept of in Adam, walking like we're still in the old man. But we are to be completely changed, transformed by the renovation of our thinking, that you may demonstrate that the will of God is good and acceptable and complete. So that's the focal point. Now, as we go through Philippians 2.14, we've seen the first command that we're to do all things, or the first command was uh, 13, uh, excuse me, 12. First command was to work out uh, our deliverance. Second command, do all things without complaining and disputing. And the next two verses relate to that command. We're to do it with a, for a certain purpose or result. And second, we're to do it that in a way that we shine forth as lights in the world. And then there's another participle here that's a participle of means. We shine by holding fast to the word of life. We hold on to the word of life. That is our standard. That's our guide that determines the way we think. That is our, our focus and priority. So we shine forth as lights. And I've been thinking about this, and so I put together about 18 points. Aren't you happy? On what the Bible teaches about light and life. This is a major theme, and it begins where? Genesis 1, verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God moved on the earth, brooded over the waters, and on the first day God created light. So you have this contrast between light and darkness. And I have all kinds of questions about that. How can God, who dwells in unapproachable light and who is light, create the universe dark. What is darkness? Now you can go all kinds of places with this. Usually darkness is defined as the absence of light. Well, I think there's something more to that because when you see the metaphor of darkness used, for example, if you lived in Gaza, you would know what spiritual or moral darkness was. And it's not just the absence of good. If you grew up in a Roman Catholic background then you were taught that what sin is is the absence of good. 
that's not correct. That le- that has led to a lot of problems within their theology. It's interesting. The other night I was listening um, to a uh, Zoom meeting, and a rabbi was talking about how of the Jewish view of evil and how they handle the problem of evil. And it's changed. They used to think about well, where does it come from? Now they now what they do is they think about well, what can we do about it? Ignoring where does it come from? They go jump. Remember the um, iceberg illustration I use. That you, when you get to the question of what should I do, that's an ethical question. That ethical question is built upon an understanding of how do we know truth. That's epistemology, and the bottom level is metaphysics or ultimate being. Uh, what what is ultimate reality? Well, they can't define that because of the influence of rabbinics, rabbinical theology. So they've gone to where they just, well, we just throw out those questions and we'll just jump to what are we going to do about it. And that's a problem. But they assume the same definition of sin or evil that Roman Catholic theology did, and that is the privation or the absence of good or righteousness. But when you look out in the world, look at Romans 8. Romans 8 describes the fact that the the creation is corrupt. That's something that is more than just the lack of evil. There is something that is a substantive there. It's not just the absence of good. There is something that is qualitatively destructive about evil that is uh, permeating all of the universe. It it permeates geology, it it permeates physics, it permeates botany and biology and meteorology. It it permeates all of your bodies, my body. And so we are all under the curse of sin. There's something qualitatively corrupting about this. And that is in contrast to what the Bible talks about, God as being light and life. So I'm just going to work our way through this somewhat logically so we can put some things together. First of all, we have to recognize that light is used as a metaphor in the Scripture to to describe the essence, the character of God, His essential being. Now, I'm starting here not with the physical property of light, because we always have to start with God. We don't start with the creation in any development of an answer to something. We always have to start with the creator. And so we start with God, and he is described in this metaphor that, that he is light and that he dwells in unapproachable light. And this describes his his essential being. It summarizes it. In 1 John 1, 5, John says in the last part of the second line that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It is a light that we cannot imagine in terms of its purity. So light here uh, is used for two things. It is used metaphorically to talk about God's God, uh, God's revelatory aspect, that he, in his light, truth is revealed. It is understood. And that um, the second aspect of light is it's talking about purity. 
righteousness, justice. So light is used as a metaphor for uh, righteousness and um, his uh, moral purity. And it is also used for the fact of the reality of revelation. In 1 Timothy 6.16, it talks about God's essence. He alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. I don't think we do we I don't even think we can do justice to the significance of that statement. I don't think we can fathom it that he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. It's beyond our frame of reference. He is absolute purity. Psalm 104:2 says covering thyself talking about God covering thyself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Light, again, uh, being a metaphor for God's essence, his person. Psalm eighty-nine, fifteen, second part of it, O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. Your countenance is talking about who you are, your essence, your being. They walk, they live in the light of your countenance. So notice that though it uses the word walk and not live, there's a connection there between life and light. We see that connection a lot going through Scripture in one way or another. It's interesting that the first thing God creates in preparing the earth for the habitation of man in Genesis 1 is light. And we'll see that tied together with life later on. Psalm 4, 6, lift up the light of your countenance. So it's talking about the essence of God. Habakkuk 3, 5, uh, his radiance is like the sunlight, his rays flashing from his hand. Psalm 44, 3, uh, but thy right hand and thy arm and the light of thy presence. So you, we talk about the Shekinah, uh, Shekinah from the Hebrew word Shekan, S-H-K-K. In. Think about those three consonants. Shekinah has those three consonants. It has to do with the dwelling of God. When God dwelt in the tabernacle, uh, there was a radiance. There was a, a pillar of cloud during the day and fire at night. When God entered the tabernacle, there was a light that emanated from the tabernacle. So that indicates his presence. Second, light in reference to its brightness and white purity is used as an illustration of the righteousness of God. Job 30 verse 26 says, When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. So notice the contrast between light and darkness. Light for good in the parallel, darkness with evil. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We ought to have that chiseled into the stonework of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Isaiah 58, 8, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. So all of this emphasizes light in terms of God's righteousness and his moral purity. Third, we see that light has a piercing quality. Uh, it, it illuminates and reveals what is in the darkness. So it is a metaphor for the justice of God. I've often used this illustration of going into a cave. Uh, when, I was, um, when I was a teenager and, and up in the hill country, I went in several caves that were that are not available for the never have been available for the public, but they were there and it was just on a ranch, so you could do it back then. You can't do that anymore; they're all closed up. And you'd go down into these caves, or you'd go to public caves like um, uh, like Longhorn Caverns, or you have Mammoth Caverns. I think that's in in Kentucky. You go deep in there, and there'll be these huge open rooms, and they'll put a couple of hundred. 300 people in there turn off all the lights and you can't see anything there's no light anywhere but then the guide will strike a match and just that one little match will illuminate this whole room and it's amazing you could take out a book you could be 50 feet from the guy and take out a book and you could you could hold it up like this so the lights reflecting off of it and and see the writing on the pages so so you don't have a hard division there. Isn't that interesting? You, don't, you can't make a hard division when it says in Genesis 1, uh, 1, 3, or 4 that God divided the light from the darkness. How did he do that? Is there a hard division there so that if you're over here, you're in darkness, and over here, you're in light? But light tends to penetrate the darkness. I just have a lot of questions on how all of this happened. So fourth, the absence of light or darkness indicates the presence of divine judgment. When, you're, when there's no light and there's the talk of darkness, it indicates sin and evil and the judgment of God for violating his righteous standards. So you have a passage like Amos 5.18. Alas, you who are longing uh, for the day of the Lord, that's looking forward, that's the talking about the tribulation period, later described as Daniel's 70th week. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Isn't that an interesting statement? It will be a time of darkness. Why? Because Satan is allowed a free hand. He is the prince and the power of the darkness. He is the father of lies. But you know, what's interesting is there are still going to be millions and millions of people who will come to trust in Christ and respond positively to the gospel. When you get into Romans 7 and you have this uh, innumerable crowd, the text says they are without number. In heaven, and they are robed in white robes. They are the martyrs who came out of the tribulation. So there's going to be an enormous number of people beyond our ability to count that get saved during the tribulation. That is God's grace. Amos 5.20 goes on to say, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? 
It's a time when evil is given free reign. God restrains. Second Thessalonians 2 says that God, the restrainer, uh, will be removed. And if we think about the darkness in areas like Afghanistan and the Sudan and in uh, some of the other places uh, in the Congo, uh, in Africa, where uh, Islamists rule and they, they, the, all of the horrible things that happened um, in just a couple of days to uh, the Jews living along the Gaza Strip happened day in and day out to Christians in those countries in Africa and in some of the other places, Yemen. Yemen is one of the most atrocious, evil places on all of the earth. And yet there will come a time when the restrainer is removed and these will look like the good old days in those places. We can't fathom that. Fifth, the presence of light often refers to the truth of God, the veracity of God, his eternal truth. In Psalm 43.3, the psalmist said, O oh, oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. So light is a picture of God's revelation. Uh, specifically in uh, the sixth point, light describes the facets or components of God's integrity, his righteousness, his justice, and his truth, which are combined in some passages like Psalm eighty-nine, fourteen. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness or faithful, loyal love, your faithfulness and truth go before you. That is a fabulous passage telling, linking righteousness, justice, God's faithful, loyal love and truth together as the primary characteristics of God's reign. Psalm eighty nine fifteen. How blessed are the people who know the know the joyful sound, O Lord! They walk in the light of your countenance. That has to do with his his righteousness, his justice. And the seventh point: the absolute truth of God then is the attribute underlying His revelation. If God is light, and He that indicates His perfect righteousness and truth then that which it reveals must be absolute truth. So his, this fact that God is light means that that which he reveals is absolute truth. So light indicates the illumination from divine truth. The word lights our thinking and way of light, life. Psalm 18.28 says, For you will... Light my lamp. We use that use a lamp in the darkness to illuminate our way. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Somebody, some brilliant techie, probably about 15 years ago, came up with one of the greatest ideas, of, I think, of modern culture. He put a flashlight on a phone. Right? How many times you get up in the middle of the night and you've got your phone with you and you're getting ready to bump into a door and you turn the light on and 
all of a sudden you can see where you're going. Everywhere you go, you get on an airplane. Well, I can't see into my bag. I can't find this. So what do you do? You pull out your phone. You turn the light on. It, it's great. God enlightens our darkness. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word, his truth, his light, all these things come together. Eight, in conclusion, sort of in conclusion of these initial seven points, we see that light represents the totality of God's essence, of his character. And it it has a special emphasis on his righteousness, his justice, his veracity or truth, and the illumination and guidance which Bible doctrine, which the teaching of God's word provides for life. Isn't that incredible? All that comes from God's word, but if you don't open your Bible and read it, and you don't go back and study it, then then you're you're in darkness, really. So now we move into a slightly different orientation in these points. The light of God is related to life itself. Psalm 36, 9. The psalmist says, For with you is the fountain of life. Then in the next stanza, which is uh, part of poetry, so it's developing a thought here. It's not a synonymous parallelism. Uh, This would be called an emblematic parallelism where the second line develops an idea that's embedded in the first. But sometimes you have this with at least a word that is there, but the connection is between life and light. For you is the fountain of life. So it's focusing on God as light. And that light I mean, is, is the focusing on God as the fountain of life. And it's the life of God that is illuminating. That's, this is the verse that we use, why we call the YouTube channel, In Your Light We See Light. Tenth point, Jesus is said to be both life and light, the life and light of mankind at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Isn't that interesting that in both Psalm 36, 9 and John 1, 4, life precedes light. And so that it's the very life of God that is illuminating all of our existence. And Jesus embodied that at the first advent. Eleventh point is that light is contrasted with darkness. Light is the revelation of God. It pierces the darkness with truth and illuminates. You can't avoid it. When there is truth there, people will know it. Now, they may reject it. They may become hostile to it. They may react negatively to it. But they are reacting because it is illuminating their darkness, and they don't like it. When a believer walks into a room of unbelievers who are not operating on truth, then there's going to be a reaction. People will know it and be aware of it. So darkness is the absence or the rejection of God's revelation. In John 1, 5, we're told, and the light shines 
in the darkness. This is a universal principle, the light of God's word, the light of Christ. He is the what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the light of the world. Notice he says things. He's life and he's light. John 1, 5, uh, the darkness doesn't comprehend it. So how did the darkness respond to the light of Jesus? You think there's a connection between how they responded to the light of Jesus and how they'll respond to you shining as a light in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation? John 3.19, and this is the condemnation or this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It's like going to a house that's filled with cockroaches and you turn the lights on and everything scurries out of the way. Uh, you're the light that's exposing the cockroaches. If you're a believer walking with the Lord, I, I read, I've been reading this last year, lots and lots of missionary stories. And it is so fascinating to read about pioneer missionaries who go into some of the places that are very, very dark in uh, South America or in Africa or India and the reactions that occur before anything is said. And there is a response. There's a recognition on the part of some that that this is something different. This person is something different. They'll react and they'll want to kill him or her. And then on the other hand, there are those who recognize that that this person is coming and they're going to tell me something I've wanted to hear my whole life. I mean, it's just amazing how many stories there are of missionaries who go to some tribe in the middle of nowhere and begin to tell them about the God of the Bible. And some old guy comes up and says, I've been praying for this, for God to send you to tell me about him for all my life. Jesus is the light that has come into the world. In verse 20, it says, for everyone practicing evil hates the light. Now think about that. Think about that in terms of the Muslim Brotherhood and all of their various manifestations. They, the Muslim Brotherhood is designed in such a way that they intend for people to leave, to renounce the Muslim Brotherhood, but still hold to everything in deception and to go start uh, similar organizations. ISIS was one of those. Islamic Jihad is another one of those. And today, you know, a lot of people thought, well, we defeated ISIS. Well, ISIS is starting to make some more noise again uh, against Israel and against Europe and calling for uh, their, um, their associates to uh, commit terrorist acts. And so, you know, evil hates the light. Evil hates you. And there's no religious belief on this planet, I think, that is more evil than Islam. But the others are just a little bit behind. You know, evil is evil. You can't really compare it one against the other. If it's against God, it's against God. So the evil hates that. And as we, get, I think as we get closer to the end times, and I'm not predicting anything, it could still be 50 or 100 years away before the rapture occurs. We're going to see, and we're witnessing more and more, it seems, of a 
uh, of the the restrainer is going to be pulled back at the rapture because the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. But as more and more people reject Christianity and fewer and fewer people uh, have the Holy Spirit or dwelt by the Holy Spirit because there's fewer believers, then we're going to see more and more darkness and more and more evil take place uh, around us. But our mission is to stand fast and to shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So we are remembered that our Lord and Savior is light. In John 1, 9, he says uh, that, meaning the Word, was the true life. He was the true life. The Logos was the true light, which gives light to every man who comes into the world, even the most hardened occultist, even the most hardened atheist, Deep in their soul, they know Jesus is who he claimed to be. They know that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exists and that he created everything, but they hate it and they suppress it in unrighteousness. John eight twelve, Jesus spoke uh, to the Jews again. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So if we're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the light of life because he is the light. So we have the truth and we can hold on to that and we can uh, keep it close. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Another interesting verse is in Second Timothy uh, 1.10 that says, but it's now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's an interesting verse to think through in terms of the context of Scripture on life and light. John twelve thirty six, Jesus said, While you have the light, he was present, first advent, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. See, that's where we are. We are called children of light. We are light, Ephesians says. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And in John twelve forty six, he said, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. But we know that some will. They'll walk in darkness. Some believers walk in darkness. Some believers abide in darkness. Scripture says so, warns about it. So on the 13th point, just to summarize what we've learned so far, number one, God is light. He's light. He dwells in unapproachable light. Second, Jesus is the light of the world. He is light. He he is light. He is the light of the world. Jesus' light brings life into the world. Light and life are connected and dispel the darkness. But the darkness rejects the light. This will happen. Not always. There are many times and many occasions, and we've experienced that many of our lives where people get the gospel and they respond and they trust the Lord and and they just become another bright light. But the one who comes to the light uh, becomes sons of light and they are not to abide in darkness. The trouble is some of them do. So, 14. Since God is light, taking us back to point one, first John one five, God is light, we are to live our lives in the light 
to have fellowship with one another. So we are to live in the light of God's word, walking in the light in order to enjoy that fellowship. That's not just social interaction. That is to enjoy our partnership, our camaraderie in pursuing the same goal, which is to be lights in the midst of a dark generation. Then under point 15, the last three or four points I have, we recognize our new identity in reference to God's light. See, we have an identity, a new identity. We're now in the new man, and we are light in the Lord. That is our position. But then the command's going to come that we are to walk in light, which means that we can choose not to walk in light. There's the warning in 1 John 1 that not to walk in darkness. So under 15, we recognize light is used as a metaphor for the kingdom of God and the plan of God in contrast to darkness. Uh, Darkness is used for the kingdom of Satan, carnality, sin, and evil. Acts 26, 18 says uh, that Christ came to open their eyes so that they may turn from from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. So how many options are there? There's two, Satan and God. I mean, that's it. The Bible doesn't recognize some in-between point of neutrality. So you're either going to be allied with Satan and his mission and his cause, or you're going to be aligned with the God of the Bible. And uh, so he says that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance. That's talking about the general inheritance for all believers among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Colossians 1.13 says, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, so that he refers to God the Father, who delivers us and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, the kingdom is one of those really confusing concepts for a lot of people. If you're amillennial, which means you don't believe in a literal millennium, you don't believe in a literal interpretation of Revelation 20, then what that theology did, starting in about the early 300s to 250, was they said, okay, we're in the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not going to be a physical kingdom. It's not going to be a Jewish kingdom. There's not going to be a literal Messiah sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. He's in heaven, and it's a heavenly kingdom, and we're just manifested here on the earth. A thousand doesn't mean a thousand. It could be any length of time. It's just sort of an ideal number. And um, so we're in the kingdom, and you'll hear everybody get confused, and they say, well, we need to do this for the kingdom and that for the kingdom and all of this, but the kingdom is the kingdom of the Messiah. Now, in the Old Testament, I talk about God as the king, but God is the king of who? He's the king of Israel. But in the church age, it's not about the kingdom. You should wipe that language out of your mouth because we're in the church. We don't do things for the kingdom. We do things for the church. We do things for the for our Lord. We are the bride of Christ, and we're here to serve him. It is not about the kingdom. It is about our mission in the church age, which is different from what it will be in the kingdom. But 
if we serve well, we'll touch on this next time. When, if we serve well, we're rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Those, many of those rewards have to do with our privileges and position in the millennial kingdom to rule and reign with Christ. So that's our destiny as the members of the body of Christ to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. But the kingdom doesn't start till the second advent and Jesus comes down to defeat uh, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. So he delivers us and transfers us to the kingdom which will come in the future. So we have to understand the significance of that. It is a future kingdom. It is not a present kingdom. 16, our new legal position is that we're adopted into the royal family of God. Our legal position is light, Ephesians 5, 8, which we'll be getting to in the next Sunday or two. For you were once darkness... That was their position in Adam, in darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. So we are this. That's our position. And then we have the command, walk as children of light. So that means that you can walk like a child of darkness still. And that's the battle in the Christian life, whether you're going to be influenced by the devil's world or influenced by the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5 says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. That's our new position in Christ. But 17 says, But in our experience, we will walk or think, talk, live either in light or in darkness. Sometimes we live part of the day as if we're a child of darkness. Sometimes we live part of the day like a child of God, like a child of light. So John says in 1 John 1, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say, maybe we will, maybe we won't, but it's possible that you will say that you have fellowship with him, but you're living your life, you're thinking, talking, walking, conducting your life in darkness then you lie and you're not practicing the truth. So if you're, in, if you're walking in darkness, you're not practicing truth. You're living a lie. You are living in the lie, as Ephesians 5.19 says. We've put off the lie, but many times people go back and they just live the lie. Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, which means that we can do it, we have that fellowship because we have that fellowship with him. We have fellowship with one another who are walking in the light, that partnership, that intimate spiritual relationship. And we know that the blood of Christ or the death of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, the means of applying that comes up in verse 9, but that's not where we are right now. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were once darkness, our position, but now you are light in the Lord, our new identity in Christ. Walk as children of light. First John 1, 6 says we can walk in darkness. 18, we are not to partner. That is fellowship. That's the word fellowship. It means to partner with somebody in achieving a goal. We are not to partner with the works of darkness, but we are to expose them. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around with a flashlight 
We are the flashlight. Our very life, our values, how we play out and live our life based on those values exposes the darkness. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship or partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. That means there's a lot of things that, that we now hear on the news, language and other things that, we are, that are described on the news that shouldn't even be talked about in public. But our, our culture has degraded a lot in the last 25 years. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, by the revelation of God's word. For whatever makes manifest is light. In Matthew 5, 14, 14 through 16, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, and this is true for us as well, you are the light of the world. Each one of us, we are the light of the world. We are sons of light. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. See, there's a lot of Christians who do that. They try to hide it. They don't want to be thought of as strange or weird or a problem or different. They try to uh, put a basket on their light or a heavy lampshade on it, uh, but their light still comes out. And Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, not hear your reprimands, okay? Not hear your statements that they're idiots or stupid or uh, following the devil, but that by your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what we've seen is that in this passage in Philippians two twelve to 18, the first command, it has to do with our spiritual growth, our spiritual life, that we are to work out our deliverance. We're responsible to produce our own deliverance with fear and trembling. Deliverance from what? This is phase two, deliverance from the power of the sin nature. That means we are to be growing and maturing as a believer. The second command is that we're to do all things without complaining or disputing. Uh, that has a purpose, that you may become uh, something you're not right now, something more, that you're blameless and harmless, children of God uh, without fault in the midst of a per crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. We do this, verse 16, by holding fast to the word of life. That must be our priority and our life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be challenged here that we are light and we are to live as children of light. Our lives should shine forth just because of our spiritual growth. So it's not something we go out and do. It's not something we come up with a 10-point list and tomorrow we go out and try to achieve it. But that we are to walk by the Spirit. We are to abide in Christ. We're to study your word, read your word, memorize your word, uh, absorb it into our thinking and apply it on a regular basis. And as the years go by, we'll see a transformation and those around us will see it as well. And that is how we are a light unto a wicked and perverse generation. We pray that we might not shrink back, but that we might be steadfast 
and that as a church and a congregation that we are known uh, as a church and a congregation that holds fast to the word of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.